Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to welcome all three of the authors of a fabulous new book from Oxford University Press titled When Peacekeeping Missions Collide, Balancing Multiple Roles in Peace Operations. The three authors, Dr. Paul Deal, Dr. Dan Druckmann, and Dr. Grace Muller, are here to tell us about their original and comprehensive assessment of how different peacekeeping missions interact with each other to help us understand both some relatively recent conflicts and very much um, UN peacekeeping more broadly and into the future. So thank you so much to have all three of you here to tell us about the book. I'm so pleased to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Can we start off a bit, please, with some background on the book, its context and what motivated this particular project? Um, Perhaps, Dan, you'd like to start us off? Sure. Thanks, Miranda. Glad to be here with my uh, colleagues. So let me just uh, start by saying most generally that we've produced a body of work. Uh, This book is the culmination of about, uh, I don't know, it could be as much as uh, 20, 25 years of work. And what we try to do in this work is to capture both what we call depth, that is opening the lid of peacekeeping operations, and breadth, that is varied settings, varied cases, varied environments in which peacekeeping operations occur. A little history here I think would be useful. Our work actually began somewhere around 1995 when Paul and I served on a national, a U.S. National Research Council committee on organizational performance. Paul and I were part of a subcommittee that studied what was called then changing missions with a focus on peacekeeping, since after all, our sponsor was the Army, uh, U.S. Army Research Institute. A key distinction that was made in that iteration of our work was between combat and contact skills, each with its own training requirements. But we also considered the role of skills training in a larger environment defined by what we call macro-level influences over which peacekeepers have very little control. Uh, Factors such as geography and terrain, the state of play in the larger conflicts, civil or interstate conflicts, and the need to coordinate with other forces and NGOs that operate often with different uh, norms and different codes. These considerations for us raised interesting issues about what we've come to call the interplay between the micro and the macro. And uh, these are influences more generally on organizations. Soon after the NRC committee had completed its work, our subcommittee, which included Jim Wall as well, uh, got to work on a more detailed analysis of what goes on during peace operations. In that work, we define 12 kinds of missions that are part of operations, ranging from what is known as traditional peacekeeping with a focus on ceasefires, usually following negotiated agreements, all the way to ambitious interventions such as uh, supporting democracy and election supervision. We also define 12 characteristics of peacekeeping operations, ranging from the role of the peacekeeper to consent of the whole state and a whole variety of things in between. We performed a number of statistical analyses and I will be talking about some of those in the context of the book a little bit later. Another interesting opportunity presented itself uh, in the context also of an NRC or National Research Council committee. We uh, convened a forum uh, and the forum consisted of so-called knowledge experts on peacekeeping to debate how best to evaluate these kinds of missions. Interestingly, the most contentious issue was philosophical. We had a heated discussion on the merits of behavioral data, for example, and or subjective narrative data. Uh, The defenders of both approaches, the behavioral data-driven or the narrative subjective, um, were kind of dug into their views and reluctant to consider an approach that combined behavior, observations, with perceptions from interviews. 
thought that was an interesting thing that might be stymieing progress in the field to some extent. We took a break for several years. Uh, Paul and I did some other projects as well. Uh, and then we returned to research on peacekeeping uh, in the 2000s somewhere. Um, our new focus this time was on outcomes specifically, and uh, we were interested in what factors led to peacekeeping success. We started off with an article that we published in the Journal of International Peacekeeping around 2009 that examined broad features of the environment, characteristics of the conflict, governance, local, local populations, and we wanted to know what their impact was on peacekeeping outcomes. And we spent a good deal of time talking about the relative malleability of these factors uh, throughout the operation. And we realized that this had implications for the way peacekeepers were trained. Uh, in other words, it was necessary to take account of the fact that peacekeepers had to adjust sometimes very rapidly. The larger work was uh, a book and a very ambitious book, which was sponsored actually by the Australian government. Uh, and here we were looking in great detail on indicators of progress for each of several goals, such as violence abatement, uh, conflict containment, conflict settlement, for each of three types of peacekeeping operations, traditional operations, uh, non-traditional or more modern operations, and uh, also peace building. We applied the framework to the case of Bosnia and constructed several models of relationships among all of these factors. Then we moved on to a very important follow-up project where we uh, solicited uh, our colleagues. Uh, I think they were all in Australia at the time. And we asked them to use our framework and our analyses in different case contexts. So interestingly, we analyzed in addition to the Bosnia case, which we had analyzed for the book, we now had Cambodia, Cote d'Ivoire, Timor-Leste, and Liberia added on to our cases. That, that's five cases analyzed by the same framework. And the result was, in a nutshell, a number of extensions and refinements of our framework. And we concluded, more or less, that our framework held up quite well, and we thought it could be used confidently as we move forward to new peacekeeping uh, projects and new peacekeeping experiences. Quickly, the next two articles were both published in the journal called International Peacekeeping um, a few years later, and we focused there on missions identified earlier, and this is what provided, we think, the springboard for, for our book. The first article, which appeared in 2018, analyzed uh, mission interdependence it identified a number of considerations to take into account when addressing these issues. For example, compatibility, sequencing, selection effects, multiple operations and actors, short long-term effects. So we looked at all of these factors as things that could be considered constraints um, on how peacekeepers function in the field. In the article, we also provide an outline for what we call a holistic framework, which also was the uh, progenitor, the beginning of thinking in terms of large organizing frameworks, which we'll come back to when we talk about the book shortly. So we define the concept of compatibility in a second article, which we published more recently in 2022, actually. And uh, this was an ambitious statistical analysis, and we defined the concept. I'll talk about that a little bit later with Grace. And we developed a variety of measures that can be used to evaluate the role of compatible or incompatible missions. And uh, we were particularly interested in, in whether compatibility would lead to more effective processes and also more success in the outcome. And again, I'll have more to say about that in the context of the book. So this gives you a general overview of the stream of work that we did going, I guess now from 1995, it must be 25 years or a little bit more than 25 years uh, leading up to uh, the culmination, the most uh, probably the most ambitious of our, of our work, which is called 
when peacekeeping missions collide. And I'll pass it over to Paul. Wonderful. Thank you. Paul, is there anything further you can tell us about the motivations of the book? Yeah. uh, Thank you, Dan. That is a great history of the origins of sort of the ideas of multiple roles that uh, peacekeepers play. I'd like to frame the the book uh, a little bit uh, beyond peacekeeping to start, because I think it, it certainly is about peacekeeping, but it really addresses sort of a bigger scholarship problem. I think there's a there's a tendency in academic work, particularly in international relations, to treat individual events or elements separately in isolation to everything else. So often people who study uh, wars uh, or given kinds of events or crises study one thing at a time. They don't look more broadly at uh, how those events or wars fit in a sequence or fit in a history, both with a recognition of how the past influences the the present or the present looks into the future. And you can see this in a lot of conflict management studies where people who study mediation, for example, study one kind of, you know, one kind of mediation event, either as a case study or in a large end analysis. And don't understand that previous mediation attempts affect those, those that go on at the same time simultaneously, uh, also affect the kind of outcomes and processes that we're working, as well as the anticipation of what's going to come next. So when we looked at peacekeeping, we were motivated in large part, not by looking at all the the individual things that peacekeepers do, but how they do things together. And there's been a tendency, particularly in the peacekeeping work uh, that's been done, to focus only on what we call one of the missions or one of the roles that peacekeepers play. Now, almost all of that research has been focused on one mission, and that's uh, monitoring uh, ceasefires and preventing the spread of conflict, what we call the traditional uh, peacekeeping uh, mission. But peacekeepers do a lot more than those things, and they do a lot of those um, at the same time or following the traditional peacekeeping mission. And so we were interested in first shedding some light on those other kinds of missions. There's some emerging research that looks at those, but they're only doing, you know, focusing on things like the rule of law or uh, democratization and ignoring all the others. So our motivation is, What peacekeepers do is they do more than one thing. They do more than one thing at once or in sequence. And most importantly, they do things that might affect one another. So this was a probe into not just looking at many things that that peacekeepers do, we're doing that, but looking at how they influence one another, which to our knowledge is something that that uh, has not been done in peacekeeping research, and frankly, and more broadly in conflict management research, uh, is largely ignored. That's very helpful to have laid out to start us off. Thank you, Paul, for that. Getting in then to the book, can you introduce us to your taxonomy of the dimensions of peacekeeping missions? Yeah, we had to decide if you if we know that peacekeepers do a lot of different things, uh, the question is, is how do you classify those? Uh, those who've kind of done work in past haven't thought beyond the traditional kind of peacekeeping mission. And so we have to figure out, well, what kind of things go together? How can we identify those particular kinds of, of roles? There's a, a tendency in some of the newer peacekeeping research to focus on tasks or things that that peacekeepers do, uh, often embedded in mandates. But when we started to look at that, we found that in some cases what peacekeepers do, for example, monitoring a, a given situation, they're doing it in pursuit of different goals. One goal would be, of course, to monitor ceasefires, but they also perform monitoring functions in supervising elections and supervising the disarmament of rebel groups. And those are very distinct kinds of missions or goals. So we began with some of the taxonomy of different kinds of missions that uh, Dan and I did in our 2010 book on evaluating peace operations and looked more closely to try and look at the various kinds of goals and purposes that peacekeepers did and came up with uh, a taxonomy 
of 11 different uh, missions, what we define as missions, integrated sets of tasks towards specific goals that we thought that that peacekeepers do. These are embedded in mandates, although they're not the same as mandates. They're ones that are carried out in specific operations. They're ones in statements, in authorizing resolutions for the uh, for the UN Security Council and the like. And so accordingly, and outlined in the book in detail, are the missions of traditional peacekeeping, humanitarian assistance, supervising elections and supporting democracy, preventive deployment, DDR, which is disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration, pacification, using coercive force, protecting human rights, security sector reform, promoting the rule of law, developing and assisting local governance, and promoting reconciliation. Of those 11, we, we, we decided not to look carefully at preventive deployment or pacification just because they were relatively rare and, di- and didn't raise the same kinds of theoretical and empirical kinds of issues. But from this kind of uh, taxonomy, it gave us a sense that these were fairly distinct in the goals that they had, the way the peacekeepers organized and carried them out were in pursuit of the, were in pursuit of these particular operations. And starting from that kind of taxonomy, we can start to then ask kind of questions about how do they go together. Thank you for outlining that. It's very helpful. Turning to Dan, can you tell us a bit about the set of mission characteristics that you came up with? Sure. Uh, Thanks, Paul. That was very helpful. Um, In addition to um, listing and defining the 9, 10, 11, 12 missions, we also tried to get sort of inside the missions to to capture or characterize what peacekeepers do. And we uh, came up here again for symmetry. We have 12 characteristics, 12 missions, 12 characteristics uh, that would depict in varying ways, in different ways, any particular peacekeeping operation. Uh, They're useful for depicting different types of peacekeeping operations and derived from a number of sources. And our sources were both the military literature, and more so probably the academic literature, including work on conflict management. They uh, capture such features as goals and procedures, uh, the extent to which peacekeepers and their super and their commanders have control over the conflict and over the operation, something called mission creep. Uh, it's getting really hard to stay in the field and we really are getting, we're really drained of energy. Uh, Prior experience with similar missions, the extent to which it's easy to exit the mission when it's necessary to do so, and uh, something like consent of the uh, host state. We also talk, uh, we also include something called uh, constituencies, that is, uh, in the case of UN missions, it's uh, much of a larger world, mostly the civilian or policy world, who are responsible for maintaining the operation. And the idea is whether the operation is keeping them happy or sufficiently happy to keep the mission going or then to exit it. So that's an idea of what we did. We also kind of scaled each of those in terms of like, Uh, It's much, some little, easy, moderate, difficult, depending upon what the characteristic was. And to just finish this off, we did perform uh, an interesting uh, dimensionalized statistical analysis, which gave us two dimensions that ran through all of these characteristics. And one was the role of the peacekeeper as primary or third party and the kind of conflict, more or less, that they're dealing with as a distributive or integrative conflict. 
Thank you for that overview. Um, I think it's very helpful to understand what the book covers. Another aspect in the book is your analyses of compatibility, uh, which have a lot going on with them. So could you tell us a bit about what you mean by compatibility and how these analyses were conducted, perhaps starting with Dan? Yeah, all right. And I think Grace is going to give me some help here, and I'll turn it over to her at some point. Um, uh, I guess most generally, uh, we define compatibility, uh, as you might think compatibility would be defined, uh, as two or more elements of a system or unit that are able to function together effectively. That's kind of a general formal definition of what we mean by the word. But more specifically, we're referring to something called fit. And the fit can be strategic, it can be organizational, it can be cultural, it can be operational. All of those aspects of fit come into play with compatibility. But with regard to peacekeeping operations, compatibility refers to similarity of the mission characteristics, which, which we defined earlier, just defined uh, in, in our last question. With this working definition, we developed coding categories that operationalize the concept. Each of the 70 UN missions was coded for the extent to which its missions were compatible in terms of our coding categories. We then compared two operations located opposite ends of the compatibility score. Now, keep in mind, we have a very, very long appendix table where every single one of these missions, all 70 of them, have compatibility scores, uh, compatibility across the conflict, the 12 conflict characteristics. That's a lot of data enormous amount of data. We took a case uh, at one end, which is known as uh, MONUC, which is uh, the operation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. That's an example of really very low compatibility among many, I think there were eight uh, missions. That was probably the operation that had the most missions. And we compared it with another mission called MINURCA in the Central African Republic, uh, which was an example of very high compatibility among a relatively few missions, two or three or four. This was an illustrative analysis, and we wanted to see if uh, the peacekeepers uh, in Monuk faced many difficult problems, while those in Minurka were relative, kind of relatively smooth sailing, uh, didn't have as many problems, uh, and ended with uh, maybe a better outcome. Let me note, uh, without going into it in detail, that these were really very complex statistical analyses uh, that utilized alternative ways of developing compatibility indices. In fact, we had three different ways of calculating compatibility based on what Paul calls alternative theoretical logics. And I won't go into those details, but you can read them in the book. Uh, and I guess uh, we uh, largely uh, satisfied certain kind of validity criteria that was very important. The, the one that we satisfied was something that the psychologists call construct validity. Do we have um, a concept, a construct, a measurement that reflects the meaning of the concept? And uh, we think we accomplished that. What we didn't accomplish was uh, this other thing called predictive or uh, also criterion validity, where we're actually showing that our measures can predict, let's say, success or other kinds of outcomes. Uh, that still remains to be determined. Remember, we used illustrative cases in our study uh, to show that compatibility could make a difference, but those were only two cases. So we assume that we're dealing with a dynamic, ever-changing environment uh, where synergies rather than linearity come into play. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, it's difficult uh, to be very specific or precise about what we've accomplished and what we may not have accomplished. But not to worry, not to worry we discovered or invented a mode of analysis based on the idea of something which uh, we call an enhanced case study. And I'm going to get into that a little bit later on. Uh, but for now, uh, what I'm going to do is uh, turn it over to Grace, 
and ask her if she'd like to add something on our analysis of compatibility. Yeah, um, I think you did a great job kind of defining uh, how we approach compatibility. I think it can be a complex thing. It's simple, but it's complex. Um, I think I'll only add that our goal in doing all of this was to try to discern what patterns might exist among those nine types of peacekeeping missions that Paul mentioned earlier. Um, And we were trying to discern these patterns by going back to those 12 different characteristics to come up with this compatibility index, right? We are looking for the degree to which they were similar. Um, What we did with these kind of these numbers, um, these correlations is they were subjected to multidimensional scaling analysis, MDS analysis. Um, This is a statistical technique to locate each of the cases in a dimensional space. Um, So this is one of the figures in our book Um, The peacekeeping missions that share similar uh, or the same characteristics, therefore, are said to be more compatible. And this is going to be represented by uh, dots being closer together in this multidimensional space. It's kind of a way to frame our understanding of how these might fit together before we did those case study analyses. Um, And so really the bottom line for this compatibility uh, understanding and analysis is that Uh, All nine of our peacekeeping missions vary in similarity across the 12 characteristics. Um, So what this means is that peacekeepers might be asked to perform actions that don't don't really go well together. And so what does that spell for the success or the failure of their ability? Um, That's something we dive into in the case study analysis. Thank you, Dan and Grace, for explaining the compatibility aspect. Turning to you, Paul, um, this book is rooted in theory as well as case studies that we'll get to. In a sense, are you evaluating alternative theories referred to as expectations? Can you tell us what these expectations are and how you evaluated them with the cases? Yes, I, I think that you know once we had a number of these ideas, And before we conduct the case studies, we have to have some expectations that uh, tell us what to look for and where to look, where to look at them. And we start, though, with not much established theory in international relations or comparative politics uh, about these kind of connections. As I said before, though, most of the time they're focused on the conditions for success in ceasefire monitoring, but very little about going uh, through what what makes uh, peacekeeping missions interact and affect their particular outcomes, how they affect one another. And so with some original theorizing drawn from uh, some other disciplines, as well as uh, statements from policymakers and others, we came up with uh, eight different kinds of expectations to examine, uh, divided into two categories. The first category is a set of expectations dealing with what we call sequencing, simultaneity, and prerequisites, meaning how do the different missions that we examine fit with one another. In terms of prerequisites, one of the things that we've labeled as security first is the expectation often found in uh, UN statements, national leader statements, is the is the outcomes of basic security missions, particularly traditional peacekeeping and DDR, they affect the outcomes of the other subsequent missions that follow, meaning you've got to get the security situation under control before you can expect to do anything about free and fair elections, promoting the rule of law and the like. From some of the academic literature and the expectations of what might be called the liberal model of peace building is the expectation would be labeled as democracy matters meaning that if you have successful election supervision and the early promotion of democracy, that's going to have a positive influence on subsequent peace-building missions, such as establishing local governance, the rule of law, and reconciliation. In addition, we also saw of uh, the various peace-building missions, uh, specifically the security sector reform, local governance, and the rule of law, have a synergistic effect on one another, meaning they go together very well and to the extent that they succeed or fail will influence one another. 
the same type of thing is fits with those kind of peace building kinds of missions will have a positive or negative influence on the reconciliation mission, which is something that takes place in a post-conflict kind of setting. And it's one that uh, in many ways takes place much later in the peace operation as opposed to early. And finally, in this category, we have the idea that there are recursive or feedback effects that the outcomes of later missions go back and influencing ongoing missions. So to the extent that you can succeed in in democracy, promoting the rule and all and others, that feeds back and helps with uh, continuing with successful ceasefire monitoring and violence abatement. That's sort of category one with five different expectations. The category two takes off on some of the things Dan's and Grace have talked about in terms of compatibility. And there, in many cases, we, we make analogies to uh, anal- analysts in computer science, uh, organizational behavior, and others who pretty much indicate that that behaviors, tasks, missions, and others that are compatible with one another uh, enhance the performance of those. And conversely, those that are incompatible cause problems. And so we look at three uh, different types of uh, uh, expectations that are classified under compatibility. Uh, One is in general, is when you look at uh, peacekeeping operations mission profiles, those that collectively are more compatible than those that are less compatible are likely to be more successful overall in all different kinds of dimensions. In addition, we also expect that there's going to be some type of individual effects that when you look at individual missions that are incompatible with other missions, that are conducted at the same time or following one another, that incompatibility is going to cause problems for one or both of those. And finally, we investigated the possibility that given that peacekeeping operations can last up to a decade, that over time that we would expect or at least hope to see that those peace operations would learn from past kind of effects. And over time, those kind of effects of incompatibility would diminish, especially as for longer operations, as those operations adapt. So in many ways that these kinds of eight expectations are hunting licenses for what to look particularly for evidence that, that goes in there about what's happening in those peace operations. And Ultimately, in the book, uh, we come back to all those in the final chapter to look at whether those expectations were met uh, uh, fully, in part, or not at all. Thank you for that, Paul. Um, Turning then to the continuation of the book, evaluating these kinds of theories obviously has some element of causal analysis, especially when we bring case studies into it. So Dan, can you tell us about the argument the book is making around causality and case studies? Yes, and this may be uh, my favorite subject. The three of us uh, fretted for quite some time over the kind of case analyses we were performing. At first, we tried to fit them into a fairly traditional causal framework with uh, like independent and dependent variables. And we referred in the book in our early drafts to things that influence peacekeeping behavior and outcomes as causes. We use the word cause over and again. Many hours were spent by all of us turning this issue over, uh, leading eventually to the realization that our work did not really qualify as a causal analysis of uh, mission uh, effectiveness. So um, we talked a lot to each other and we had different opinions about that. At first, we ended up agreeing that we needed to remove the word cause or causal or causation from the manuscript. I think it may not appear, uh, certainly not very often. Uh, so we did, we did that, and we developed an alternative argument rooted in what I was calling a dynamic uh, or a dynamical analysis. The problem was sorting out the many factors responsible for progress and outcomes in these operations. 
even when time lagged, that is, even when you could make an argument for chronological uh, effects earlier to later, there's no easy way to separate these effects. For example, how much does a peacekeeper, how much does peacekeeper control over a mission influence the success of that mission? So this is, this is kind of similar to what I was talking about earlier is a micro-macro distinction. How do you infer that micro-level factors cause macro-level outcomes? But not to worry, we discovered or actually probably invented a mode of analysis based on the idea of, as I said a little bit earlier with, with the compa- uh, compatibility analysis, something which we call an enhanced case study or an analytical case study by which we use uh, the theoretical concepts just discussed by Paul to understand the cases, to use it as a lens for understanding uh, complex cases, which is what we actually did in the study. So we assume that we're dealing with a dynamic, ever-changing environment where synergies rather than, let's say, linearity come into play and recursive effects. Paul talked about that as an example. While some effects can be understood sequentially, that's true. Other effects derive from multiple interacting factors or are, as I said before, recursive in the sense of when the promotion of democracy depends on the later establishment of the rule of law, an interesting reverse. What we have here is a mix of inductive, working at the ground level, and deductive from the heights of theory analysis. And it's that interplay between induction, deduction, and dynamics that we're trying to analyze in these five cases that we'll be talking about shortly. Brilliant. Very helpful to now get into those case studies. So thank you for that. Turning then to the case studies, Paul, obviously selecting case studies requires careful selection of criteria. Can you walk us through what criteria were chosen and how well they worked? Sure, sure. Um, You know, in an ideal world, we would look at all the 70 UN operations that occurred by the, the end of the study, which was 2016. Um, you know, but as a practical matter, uh, that's 70 different operations with 330 <laughs> uh, different missions. Um, and to put it, it took us so many years to just do what we did. Uh, it's probably uh, unrealistic to affect uh, a full kind of study all the data gathering, all the in, intense case studies for all that, um, since we didn't really have uh, 30 or 40 years uh, to conduct all that. So the question then becomes, uh, which cases do we look at and which fit uh, uh, our various kinds of concern for research validity, as well as our ability to kind of examine those expectations? So we start out from the beginning and we can eliminate 12 of those UN operations because they only have a single mission. And if you're doing a book about uh, how missions interact, you have to look at ones that have at least two or more particular peacekeeping missions. In addition, we're also concerned about uh, developing valid inferences uh, from those cases. So we wanted to look at uh, uh, operations that lasted at least two years. And that means that we have enough time to examine the different kinds of interactions that take place between missions over an extended kind of time period, rather than ones that might have just occurred over uh, several months. In addition, we wanted to make sure that by 2016, the end date of the study, that we were able to look only at operations that had been concluded. Just like you can't really tell how a book's going to end or a movie ends by stopping in the middle, we needed to be able to, to draw conclusions from, from uh, outcomes of all those missions that are true outcomes that are clearly over. And in some cases, for some of the missions like reconciliation, rule of law, or solidifying democracy, those are really only evident in retrospect. So as we moved through the list, you could uh, exclude 
single operate single mission operations you can exclude those that are ongoing you can exclude those that were very short term beyond that we started to to consider well what's going to help us in in some ways that uh, to figure out how they interact uh, first we wanted to look at those that occurred in multiple geographic areas rather than uh, much of the peacekeeping research is focused almost exclusively on Africa. And that's where the peacekeeping operations have been in, in, in recent years. And that's where the data sets that have been gathered have been used. But we wanted to take a little bit broader view than that. We wanted to make sure that when we examined peace operations, that they were the first operation in a sequence, in a conflict, or among the first that carried out different kinds of missions in that particular conflict, rather than those that were conducted at the tail end and may have been influenced by previous operations. And of course, we wanted to be sure that you had each of the operations had traditional peacekeeping, which 80% do, because our security first kind of expectation and the core of most peacekeeping research is predicated on ceasefire monitoring and, and uh, uh, violence abatement. We also wanted to make sure that we had a full range of different kinds of missions that are there. So do they have all the different kinds of missions that we outline in our taxonomy? Are they reflected in different kinds of combinations um, uh, within the cases that we examine? And finally, we wanted some concern for some variation uh, that is temporal. That is, we don't want to just look at post-Cold War operations, but ones that span the range of time that go back to the more traditional or security-oriented missions uh, during the Cold War. And then later, the, the more, which you might call more modern uh, contemporary operations that deal with uh, peace building and, and nation building. Accordingly, when we narrow that down for both practical and theoretical kind of reasons, we end up with five different uh, uh, peacekeeping operations. The first is the UN operation in the Congo in the early 1960s. That's during the Cold War. That's followed by the uh, UN operation in uh, Bosnia that straddles the uh, Cold War and post-Cold War time. One of the first UN operations in East Timor, one of the first operations in uh, also in uh, the Congo, but much later in the 2000s, and finally the one in Sierra Leone. Collectively, we think that, that these are broadly representative and allow us to view different angles of, of mission uh, interdependence and interconnections by doing that. And since they vary substantially in the number and configure emissions, we're able to examine each of the each of the expectations that we had with at least three different, if not all five, different operations. So we're not really drawing conclusions just based on one operation. Great. Thank you for taking us through that process. And of course, now I want to hear about what was learned from that case analysis process. So Grace, could you tell us a bit about some of those findings, particularly in light of the theoretical expectations we heard about earlier? And if there's anything you want to kind of talk about here in terms of use of archives for the case studies? Yeah, uh, thanks for describing that case study selection, uh, Paul. Um, so as Paul just mentioned, we had a total of five different cases, case studies that we were looking at. Um, these peacekeeping operations had three, four, seven, eight, and nine missions, respectively. So they grew in the size and complexity. Um, so before we could even speak to our theoretical expectations, we first had to gather the data. Um, and extensive data really did have to be gathered, um, especially for our complex peacekeeping missions um, like Timor-Leste, uh, the Congo in the 1990s, as well as Sierra Leone, which had seven, eight, and nine peacekeeping missions, respectively. Uh, we relied for this study um, on both quantitative statistics found in data sets, as well as UN reports, um, as well as qualitative descriptions found in an extensive pool of secondary sources and academic articles. Um, and all of this was to give us a comprehensive account 
of each UN operation, right, in order to understand really how peacekeepers fared in this context. As I was seeking and gathering out this information, um, in many ways, I did use the framework and the mission characteristics that were provided in Dan and Paul's 2010 Evaluating Peace Operations book to kind of springboard and guide my research. Um, and in the, in the end, um, I was left with a whole kind of uh, trove of data. And so some of the sources you asked about um, included statistics on civilian battle-related and peacekeeper casualties. Um, we had statistics about troop levels and deployment changes uh, during the course of the operation. Um, many of these were found in United Nations mandates, Security Council resolutions, as well as UN weekly digest reports. Um, there was information about the number of weapons collected and how ex-combatants were demobilized. We had statistics regarding the delivery of humanitarian assistance and the total number of inter internally displaced persons. Um, these statistics were found in World Bank data as well as other NGO reports. Uh, we also had information about state and local elections, um, even as specific as voter registration, turnout, outbreaks of violence. Um, for these reports, the Carter Center was very, um, very great to uh, turn toward. And then finally, we looked at changes over time in democracy scores, level of judicial independence, human rights scores, as well as other health indicators. Um, so obviously, we had a bunch of this data. And so what we had to do was organize this data to put together this narrative summary of each of these five UN peacekeeping operations under consideration. And the point of doing this was to be able to speak to the success or the failure of each mission um, under consideration. Um, ultimately, again, because our purpose in this book is understanding multiple peacekeeping operations, we're trying to discern um, the interaction of these multiple peacekeeping missions, as well as the compatibility and how other expectations come into play here. Um, and there's a lot of things I learned. I think I think we could go on for hours and hours talking about kind of takeaways that I have. Um, I think for me, in terms of our theoretical expectation, one thing that was interesting to see that was confirmed in each one of our case study uh, under consideration um, is the importance of the successful basic security missions. So this was called our security first expectation. Um, in our final chapter, we kind of discuss how our expectations were met, um, what, what went through, what kind of fell through. Uh, but for our security first expectation, it's confirmed in all five of our peacekeeping missions. Um, so basic security missions are those first two, namely traditional peacekeeping as well as DDR. Um, and we argue that these have downstream consequences for the other missions. And so we, we actually do see this. So with the first Congo mission, ONUC, because peacekeepers were mostly ineffective in these, these basic security missions, that had negative downstream effects for the other mission. Same thing with uh, Bosnia, same thing with the, later, uh, with the later Congo mission as well, because peacekeepers were ineffective in those basic security missions, that led to problems later on. Um, whereas we have two cases with East Timor as well as Sierra Leone, where peacekeepers were able to successfully ensure uh, those basic security missions were met, this, has, this had positive consequences on the other missions. I think for me, uh, that was especially surprising, specifically for our last case study, which actually has a whole chapter dedicated to it, uh, the mission in Sierra Leone. Um, this had all nine peacekeeping missions. And so I think for me at the outset, I expected that it would be the most complex and perhaps the most likely to fail, if you will. But because peacekeepers were able to uh, effectively uh, ensure the security in Sierra Leone, um, they were able to successfully deliver traditional peacekeeping as well as DDR. Um, this led to positive effects. And so even though it was a very violent uh, civil war in Sierra Leone, you had child soldiers, you had human trafficking, um, peacekeepers were able to ensure basic security was met, and that led to positive uh, repercussions later. Uh, perhaps not for all of the missions. Like It's a little bit harder to say that the connection between basic security and the peace 
peace building missions is as direct. Uh, but overall, I think this this case study, uh, the Sierra Leone, is one of our more successful um, s- successful case studies. So I think that was something surprising for me to learn. Hmm. Thank you for highlighting that particular finding. I agree. I probably could ask you about it for hours, yeah. but I won't. Um, I will move on to asking Dan, uh, can you please describe the framework for organizing the various parts of peace operations that you developed and how this helps the literature more broadly? Sure, sure. But let me just um, uh, add a a short note to Grace's terrific uh, description of what happened in the cases. We have a nice summary table in our last chapter that Grace was actually speaking to where we list the expectations, all the theories, so to speak, and each of the five cases, and then total up, you know, we just give them a scorecard about how they were doing. So readers might be interested in after they get through all the cases and getting an idea of sort of an overall evaluation of our different uh, theoretical expectations. Now, uh, moving on to uh, the framework, um, you might recall um, earlier I talked about thinking holistically about the topic. In one of our earlier journal articles, we developed the outline to a holistic approach, which is actually compatible with what I was talking about with regard to dynamic analysis. So there's a figure in the last chapter, chapter seven, which is a framework. And um, it's shown in the form of eight boxes uh, across three time frames, antecedent, concomitant, consequent, we call them. And in the first time frame, we talk about factors which deal with preparations, including training and also past experience. We talk also about the broader conflict which precedes the operations. So those would be antecedent factors, and there's about five or six elements in each of those boxes. Then we move on to what's happening during the mission, and we call that process dynamics. And they include things like coordination. They also include conditions such as world events, for example, which can have an effect on on these missions. Um, And... What we're doing here is characterizing an unfolding, a typical unfolding operation. And then we move on to consequences uh, or outcomes, including uh, where does the conflict stand now uh, toward the end of the mission about when they're ready to exit and uh, the decisions themselves, how the decisions are made to exit as well as what happens in the post-operation period. That's a box under consequence as well, uh, where we talk about things like uh, debriefings, uh, for example, and uh, just uh, accounting for what had happened, what was learned, and where we go from here. And that then will have policy consequences, which may indeed, again, another use of the word recursive, feed back to the beginning as new operations are conceived or begun. Uppermost in this framework is the idea of uh, the, the idea that these parts, these six boxes, intermingle and can even swing back from post-operation developments to a new operation in the same and possibly another theater. These are, and this is what made our analysis so complicated, these are moving parts. For example, training for operations and the design of those operations may have a framing effect on the way they're implemented. That framing may be challenged by new learning during participation in the mission. It could lead peacekeepers and their commanders to reevaluate the plan, especially if something like mission creep sets in, and there's a yearning to get the heck out. I'm going to quote uh, in conclusion here from the book, because I think this kind of captures what I'm trying to say. Outcomes emerge from processes which are shaped by preparations and and constrained by contexts and situations. 
post-operation developments loop back recursively to the way peacekeepers are prepared for future operations and the flow continues. This depiction in this framework is congruent with our inductive-deductive methodological approach. Wonderful. Thank you for summing it up so neatly that way. Thinking then about what this might bring forward, Paul, could I ask you to tell us a bit about looking forward? What might some implications be for new research projects for policymakers? Yeah, I think there are, there are different sort of lessons or directions that we see coming from this work for both uh, scholars of peacekeeping and international organizations, as well as uh, policymakers at the UN and national capitals. For scholars, uh, of course, we don't think that the book we've written is the be-all and end-all about uh, how peacekeeping operations and their missions intersect with one another. Um, and, you know, we would hope that uh, scholars would continue and investigate some of the things that, that uh, we've raised as well as other things. But I think, you know, most importantly, there are extensive bodies of peacekeeping research on outcomes, what makes for success. And in the last five years, scholars are now looking at um, how successful are UN operations in promoting the rule of law? Uh, how are they doing on security sector reform? And in particular, priority for the UN, how are they doing in protecting civilians? I think even if you look at those particular missions in isolation, and they're all very important, what we're saying is you have to look a little bit beyond those missions to understand what else are peacekeepers doing at the same time and how do they influence the outcomes? Because the protection of civilians uh, may also be influenced not just by all the characteristics of the peace operation itself, the number of soldiers uh, and the like, but also how well was the rule of law promoted? Is security sector reform influencing that particular rule of law and vice versa? And it's those type of interactions, thinking more broadly, even if you're only focused on the outcomes of one mission, that you need to take into account the bigger picture. And we're hoping that those will become not the whole explanation, but part of the explanation for success on all the, th all the goals that the UN peacekeepers have. In terms of policymakers, I think there are a number of implications. Um, first is it's clear that those at the UN and, and the planning department uh, and elsewhere need to start considering how peacekeeping missions go together and taking some advanced planning about how they go together to anticipate the particular positive synergies as well as the problems that might occur. In some of the early analysis that we did, we didn't find that, that UN peace operations have, have distinct or particular packages or uh, portfolios in terms of missions, which suggests that they're not necessarily thinking about how things go together. Um, there is some recent consideration about sequencing uh, at the UN, but it's often not a priori, but kind of making adjustments on the fly or as they go along. We'd like to see a little bit more consideration of planning out particular missions rather than adaptations five or 10 years into them. In addition, we also think that there are strong training implications. This is something that the project that Dan referred to that goes back over 25 years uh, raised. Most UN soldiers and officers who participate in, in peace operations are trained as traditional military officers, and they're largely geared toward the kinds of skill sets and tactics that fit with the traditional peacekeeping operation of monitoring ceasefires. Yet the skill sets, the kind of training that are needed, and the different roles that go into play uh, are different when you move into uh, uh, operations that involve humanitarian assistance, promoting the rule of law, uh, and reconciliation. And as our compatibility analysis uh, is indicated, is these skill sets are not only not the same, but they often demand different kinds of role orientations and behaviors. We think that uh, 
peacekeeping soldiers and particularly the officers in command of those soldiers need to have more advanced kind of training that go into what has been referred to as contact kind of skills rather than purely kind of combat uh, kinds of skills. So I think what it comes down to, whether you're a scholar or a policymaker uh, in UN peacekeeping, is be aware of these kind of interdependencies and adjusting the kind of planning, behavior, and analyses that go along with that. Hmm. Very helpful. Thank you. Miranda, can I just add uh, one, uh, in the spirit of interaction, uh, just one point, uh, and that is uh, I'm I'm, I'm, uh, curious and interested in the relationship between what I call design, uh, design of uh, peacekeeping operations, and analysis, which is the sort of thing we did, and how do scholars and policymakers work together in this artful uh, interplay of thinking about missions and about decisions that have to be made during the course of a mission and the role played by uh, data analysis or other kinds of analyses. How do you become aware of the mix of missions that we're talking about in this work? How do you go about monitoring progress or lack thereof? What kind of training do you do? And uh, how can you discern whether or not peacekeepers have little, no, or some control over their, uh, their activities in the field? So it's the idea of finding a way of collaborating in some sense of the word collaboration to bring designs of missions and decisions about changing missions uh, to be informed by the kinds of analyses that scholars like us are doing. Great questions and points. Thank you for adding those in, Dan. Paul, that then leaves you with, I think, the massive question to end us our discussion here with. With all of this, what is the future of UN peacekeeping, especially as we haven't seen any new operations in the last few years? Um, one fact is that the UN uh, has not authorized a new peacekeeping operation since 2017. This has led, I think, some commentators to say that uh, peacekeeping is dead. It's something in the past. Um, I've heard that before. In fact, they were saying some of the same things back in the early 1980s, which sort of treated peacekeeping operations as something as a Cold War phenomenon that was not to be repeated. So I, I think it's a little bit premature to say that you know we've seen the last of UN peacekeeping operations. But given some of the deadlocks in the UN Security Council and some of the changes and the challenges in the international security environment, I think there are certain kind of questions about what's going to happen. Uh, one possibility is that we will see a renewal of peacekeeping operations. And many of the commentators and others are beginning to talk about uh, new missions, ones that we didn't examine uh, for peacekeeping operations, some of which were evident uh, uh, in the last decade or so in Mali, peacekeeping operation. And that's an emphasis on stabilization. That is to sense assisting the government in pacifying uh, different countries, uh, defeating uh, rebel uh, groups, particularly Islamic militias. Uh, also, others have suggested uh, kinds of missions that might be labeled as anti-terrorism. In a sense, they they are more similar to uh, traditional military operations than they are in the kind of missions we examine for conventional peacekeeping operations. If that comes if that comes into being and peacekeepers start playing those kinds of roles we see a number of different kind of problems arising because stabilization, anti-terrorism kinds of missions are even more incompatible than some of the, with, with uh, other types of UN uh, peacekeeping operations that we've seen before. And it's not clear that peacekeepers can play those kind of roles in the size, training, and orientations and be successful. So in many ways, taking on these new kind of roles, as much as the conflict context may demand, uh, may not be very well suited. 
The other possibility is that UN peacekeeping operations don't take on these kind of roles, but rather the UN provides its approval or, or, or stamp of approval to operations carried out by others. And the prototype for that was the recent uh, UN approval of a peace operation in Haiti, not as a UN operation, but rather an operation carried out primarily by um, uh, the Kenyan military in cooperation with with, uh, more regional military forces. And in that sense, they're carrying out missions to restore order, uh, take on some of the criminal gangs in Haiti. And the UN, again, could choose then, rather than doing its traditional organization, peacekeeping, rely on third parties, whether they are national militaries or collectives such as NATO or the African Union, to carry out kinds of more traditional operations. I think it's a little too early to say what that's going to look like, uh, but it's clear that many of the challenges and the consensus within the UN Security Council may be moving away from the more ambitious peace building or liberal models of peace building uh, based on uh, democratic governments that are coming forward. But I think you know that's something to kind of keep an eye on uh, as we move uh, you know through the rest of this decade. Absolutely. Thank you for highlighting that for us to watch. And thank you, all three of you, for coming on the podcast to talk about your book, When Peacekeeping Missions Collide, Balancing Multiple Roles in Peace Operations. Paul, Dan, Grace, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. We enjoyed it immensely. Yes, thank you, Miranda.